Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. Our scripture reading today comes from Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warnings reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued to Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. So good to have the opportunity to share with you guys today. We are in the third week. I can't get this thing. Mics and music stands, not my thing. We're in the third week of a four-week series on the book of Jonah. And as Mark has been telling us, this story is about much more than a whale, which is a lot easier than said, given our illustration here. And it's hard because we grew up with this story, right? We grew up hearing these terrifying Old Testament stories in our children's books. And we continue these traditions of telling horrifying stories from the Old Testament to our kids today. I, uh, it was a couple months ago, I was having a sweet father-daughter moment with my daughter Addie, and we were reading some scripture, and we read the story of Jonah, and quickly it turned into an absolute crisis moment where she was panicked that God was going to send a whale to consume her. And I had to use my theological background and my clinical social work skills to assure her Addie, if you don't obey, I don't know if it's going to be a bear or a hawk or an alligator, but you got to go to bed. And if any of you guys are worried about me and my theology, just know that I teach many of your kids Sunday school. It's hard to dig beneath the surface of these stories. It's hard to see more than just the whale theme in this story, but in it, I believe Jonah at its core is a message about the nature of of God. And it's a story about the merciful nature of God and our response as human beings. And I think these themes come to a head in the third chapter. In the third chapter that we're going to examine today, I think there's three movements that we're going to focus on. The first is that the reluctant prophet finally does make it to Nineveh and he proclaims his message. So one, the reluctant prophet makes it. Two, the Ninevites respond. And they respond with repentance. And three, we then have the response of God on the Ninevites. And so to begin with, our text opens, and we're told that the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And the key phrase here is, 
a second time. It seems like God is just giving this gentle nudge to Jonah, right? It seems like this very kind of innocent, just, you know, here it is again, Jonah, just a quick reminder. But if we remember the last two weeks, God has been anything but gentle with Jonah. In fact, we see this book is written in the genre of satire, and the name Jonah alone, it means dove or messenger of peace. And so this messenger of peace is given a word of God to go to their arch enemy, their biggest rivals, their biggest bullies, that he's told to go to the Ninevites and proclaim a message from God. And this is modern-day Iraq. And instead, we're told he goes the opposite way. He boards a ship and he sets sail for what is modern-day Spain. So already we see this movement here, and we're told that God, while he was on the ship, he sent a squall. And the wind and the waves started to batter the ship and he puts Jonah in a deep sleep and the pagan sailors start to call out to God and they realize that the catalyst was this prophet Jonah and so he's he's thrown into the ocean and he begins to sink. And then God sends a whale that consumes him and takes him to the depths. Jonah compares it to experiencing death. And Mark shares with us in this moment, it's actually transformative that God was able to use and we're told that the whale spits him back out onto land and Jonah begins his journey. And so as we begin this story with this nudge, this gentle reminder that God is reminding him a second time, we really have a foundation. And the foundation is that God has been relentless to send his message. God has been absolutely relentless to send his prophet to Nineveh. And so here he is. He enters the great city. And we're told he begins to proclaim his message. And we just have a little snippet of it. And he says, 40 days, and you're going to be destroyed. That's it. 40 days, and you're going to be overturned. 40 days, and you're going down. Notice what's missing here. Unlike so many prophet examples that we have, there's no, thus says the Lord. There's no, the Lord sent me here to proclaim to you. And notice what else is missing. Jonah doesn't provide an explanation or a justification for God's wrath on them. He also doesn't provide any opportunity to the Ninevites. If we look at the whole of this text, and if we look at the way God has acted so far, I think what we have here is a sign that Jonah doesn't want God to be merciful to the people he's delivering a message to. And maybe it's also that he doesn't believe God is capable of being merciful to a people like the Ninevites. I think we see this in Jonah's lackluster message. While this story is epic in proportion and it's ancient in time, I think our modern lives so often reflect the realities of Jonah. I think like Jonah, we too often go out into this world with a message that is lackluster. It's lacking a belief that God is capable of extending mercy out into the far corners of this world. And if we're honest with ourselves, maybe there's a reality that maybe we don't want God to be merciful to our enemies. So for us today, consider, are there people in this world, are there people in your lives that you don't think God is capable of extending mercy mercy to? Is there anybody in this world that maybe you would celebrate their downfall? I think in our political climate, we can all... Whether, what side we're on this, on this aisle, we all have these figures in our lives that we actually kind of root for destruction, don't we? 
I think what's so crazy about God's kingdom to me is that God calls all of us to be sent into this world to be messengers of peace and reconciliation. And like Jonah, we're sent to this message to proclaim a message to our enemies, to people that look different than us, to people who are outcasts in this world. And what, what is the message that we are proclaiming? Are we proclaiming a message that we believe that God is merciful and capable? We move to the second movement of the text, and we hear the response of the Ninevites. After hearing perhaps the worst sermon ever, that they're just 40 days and they're going to burn, we're told that from greatest to least, that they fast, that they turn towards God. We're told that when this message reaches the king, he takes off his robes, which is a sign of shedding his inheritance and his authority and the power that was given to him. And he sits in dust and he puts on sackcloth and he, and he tells his entire nation and all their animals, which again, we're, we're dealing with satire genre here, he tells them four things. And I'm going to paraphrase the text that's up here. He tells them, one, to refrain from eating. He tells them to fast. Two, he tells them to wear sackcloth. Three, he tells them to call upon God. And four, he asks them to turn from their evil ways. I think... As a church, we frequently talk about turning towards God in prayer, and we talk about how we live matters, but I think these first two, these first expressions, we rarely talk about what it looks like to fast, and definitely we rarely talk about what it looks like to wear sackcloth. Something I found so fascinating about studying this passage is that the Jewish people on the day of Yom Kippur, it's one of the most holy days of the year, it's a day that they celebrate God's atonement which is the divine mercy of Yahweh, they actually read an excerpt, and they read this passage from Jonah 3. And what's so cool about that is that the Jewish people look to a totally pagan country as an example of what God desires for repentance. I think in our culture today, we have few examples of repentance that we look to and we prop up. I think like the Jewish people, I think we can examine the Ninevites and from it, we can study how we too might respond well to God's mercy. And so, I want to focus in on fasting and wearing sackcloth. So the first, fasting. Before I get into this, when I met Mark, I was in my zealous phase as a Baylor student. I lived with eight guys, and we attended a church in town that was known for its passion and its charisma, and it was very common for someone in my house to be fasting. This was not your typical college household. Eight guys. And I can remember there was one weekend where all eight of us chose to do a three-day fast over a weekend. And I'll never forget the first night, waking up in the middle of the night, just saying, this is stupid. This is absolutely miserable. And I can remember sneaking out of my room as if I was committing some great sin and going into the pantry. And you know when you're trying to be quiet and you open a wrapper and it's just super loud and you can hear it echoing off the walls? I opened up a, a package of peanut butter crackers and quickly I began to consume as many peanut butter crackers as I could. And if you've ever done the saltine challenge, just imagine adding peanut butter to that mix. And then even I can remember getting the wrapper and knowing how disappointed my roommates would be if they found out, so I actually hid the wrapper at the bottom of the trash can. While this isn't your typical college-age sinning going on, what it also wasn't 
it was not an experience where I felt any closer to God. And I think often when we do some of these practices and these, these rituals, I think oftentimes at the end of the day, we don't really get any closer to God. So I think we need to be mindful of how we fast. And something I would advise us to do is to consider what it is that we're seeking to fill us in our lives. What is it that we're looking to in our lives that we're consuming on a regular basis that we're hoping will fill us and it's leaving us empty? The reality of fasting, it's a discipline of physical nature to represent the spiritual reality that we long for things which lead us astray. We hunger for things that do not fulfill. And when we restrain and make sacrifices in our physical consumption, we communicate that we long to be filled by something more satisfying, something more filling. So what is it today for you? What would it look like to fast and to truly experience a physical expression of growing your dependence on God? Maybe it's a fast of social media. Maybe, and this is hard this time of year, but maybe it's a fast of consumerism, of shopping less. Maybe it's a traditional fast of food or coffee or it's one meal a day or one meal a week where we dedicate time to seeking the Lord. And Kate really wanted to make sure I claimed this one. Maybe we need to fast from watching sports. And after last night, I think I'm ready. Although we're still better than Texas. Sorry. I guess we'll see next week. After fasting, the second encouragement that the king proclaims to his people is to wear sackcloth. And this one is pretty unusual for us today. Sackcloth, it was a material much like burlap. And if you can imagine wearing burlap, you're probably grateful that this is a tradition that we've not continued today. I think the act of wearing sackcloth, it was to represent discomfort and vulnerability. By literally wearing a material that would bring discomfort, the people of ancient times would physically display their inward emotions of loss, pain, grief, suffering, and remorse. And I don't know if you noticed in this passage, but we see the expression of wearing sackcloth listed three different times in this passage. In our world today, where we avoid pain and we rush to comfort ourselves, I've been wondering these past few weeks what a modern-day example of wearing discomfort and vulnerability would be. Perhaps you can come up with some better ideas than me, but the thing I've thought about that would represent wearing discomfort and vulnerability is the act of confession. And to confess is to share our true selves, things in our life that are hurting, that are broken. And it's to share those things with people that are closest to us, that we trust, and that we know will care for us. It is when we confess that we were able to challenge the cultural forces of comfort, and we are able to align more with the true reality that we are all broken, and we are all in need of healing. The paradox of God's kingdom is that the lowering ourselves in humility and vulnerability is the catalyst to transformation and growth. One more time. The paradox of God's kingdom 
is that the lowering ourselves in humility and vulnerability is the catalyst for transformation and growth. Mark touched on this last week, this, this radical idea that this whale was actually a good thing, that actually in our lives there's this downward arc of life, death, and life again that we have as Christians. As Richard Rohr puts it, there's this path of descent where we believe it's, it's in our nature to think that we want to ascend up to God. And so we want to present ourselves as looking really good. And so we've mastered the art of wearing makeup, of making ourselves presentable and pretty to this world where inside we cover up shame and we cover up that we're wounded and we're hurting. And the reality is if we can allow ourselves to be vulnerability, there's grace and there's mercy. The only thing keeping us from experiencing this is oftentimes ourselves and our own fear of what maybe other people will think. I wonder how many of us aren't experience that life again, that resurrection hope, because we're still holding on to the death that's inside of us. I wonder how many of our addictions and our struggles and our pain continues to sit and haunt us because we're unwilling to share it with this world and experience freedom. I think it's in John 3 that he talks about people are afraid, they stay in the darkness, and if they would just go towards the light, there's healing and there's mercy there. The life of Jesus is the greatest example we have of this path of descent. God taking the form of humility and becoming a human being. We're told that Jesus fasted, he spent time in isolation, and, and at the end of his life, he actually experienced rejection and separation from the Father. But that's not the last word. Through his death, he also resurrected that eternal life that he shares with us today. And so the Ninevites get it right here. The pagan outcast in this story is actually the protagonist that we can look to with the appropriate response of God's mercy. It's one of humility and vulnerability, a turning towards God. To conclude the third movement, of the third chapter. We're told that simply in one verse that God looked at the Ninevites and he offered mercy. We're told that when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. We began with the relentless, merciful God to send a reluctant prophet to a known enemy who was moved to repentance and finally we conclude by seeing and hearing the relentless mercy of God in action. In this conclusion, we see the relentless mercy of God in action towards the Ninevites. I think for me, as I began to read this, one of the struggles was to believe that, that maybe just it was solely the repentance of the Ninevites that led to this reaction of God. And I think that's why that foundation in the beginning is so critical to believe that we actually have a sandwich here. We have the relentless mercy of God presented at the beginning of this story and at the end of this story. We have a merciful God who desired for this outcast people to be welcomed in and despite a reluctant prophet still had his way, was still able to extend mercy to this people group. As I've studied this passage so much of it has reminded me of the last sermon series we just did, the story of the prodigal father, or the prodigal son. In this series, we talked about there's, there's three characters in the prodigal son story. There's the father, 
and there's two sons. And it's the youngest son, it's the prodigal, who, who disrespectfully requests his father's inheritance early. And giving it to him, the son goes out and he squanders all of it. And we're told he hit absolute rock bottom. And he's completely humbled and vulnerable and he makes the decision to return home to the father and plead for mercy. But we're told on the journey back, before he even makes it home, that the father goes and meets him and has, has open arms. I think so much of this is like the Ninevites, a people group hitting rock bottom, willing to be vulnerable, willing to turn and go back to the Father, and in return receiving the open arms of the Father. We're also told that there's this other brother who's observing this and he feels jealous. He sees the party and the celebration that's thrown for his brother and he asks the Father, what about me? God in his mercy and in his love meets this son too. And he reminds that son that he's always, had, he's always had the inheritance. And he's always been invited to the party. And in so much of this, I see in this jealousy, I see the prophet Jonah. I see Jonah wondering how God could act this lavish, this merciful towards this outcast person. I think as we read the prodigal son and as we read Jonah 3, our response as a church, it's one, to understand the mercy of God. First and foremost, this is, these are stories about the nature of who God is. But second, I think we have an opportunity to learn how do we respond to that mercy as human beings? Who do we align with? Where do we see ourselves in this story? Are we challenged by the prophet Jonah? Are we challenged by the older brother? As we look out into this world, do we maybe limit God's mercy? Do we maybe present a message into the world that is lacking? That maybe doesn't embody the full mercy of God? Or could we also relate to the younger brother, the prodigal, or the people of Nineveh? Maybe you're at rock bottom or maybe you're on your way, I don't know. But maybe there's things in your life that you need to be vulnerable. You need to be willing to turn and return to the Father knowing that He's waiting to embrace you. As a church, we typically participate in two sacraments during our service. One is an act of confession that we normally do in the beginning. We also do a time of communion. I think both of these acts are incredibly symbolic and meaningful to this text today. And I think they embody the full arc of our response as humans, as a church. And so I invite you to participate in a time of confession. And I challenge you to consider what it might look like, what it might look like to confess to someone you feel close to this week or this month. Remember that as we confess, we are all in this together. There's something profound about us reciting these words together. Whether these words directly kind of impact us or not, we are standing in solidarity proclaiming a truth that every single one of us is broken and we are in need of a merciful Father. So let us now go to a time of confession.